the National Archives podcast series, an A to Z of interesting things about Elizabethan England, presented by Ian Mortimer, as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. I've uh, been interested to see the, the development of this uh, uh, programme, and I've also been especially amused to see how the idea is that the, the, the Writer of the Month each time will talk about how archives impact on their research. And I've been thinking in the back of my mind that if anybody was going to ask me, I would have to say that the book I want to talk about, The Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England, is actually one for which I did not do a single bit of archival research directly. (laughs) But I can justify myself being here through what I think is an even more important uh, use of archives than just the research. And so therefore I'm going to preface my talk which is an A to Z of Elizabethan England, the things I find interesting or quirky or allow us to see the past in a different way. I'm going to preface that talk with a little bit about what archives are to me because it does give me this different standpoint. The reason I feel very confident taking on new historical forms, writing about different time periods, moving away constantly from anything that would resemble a comfort zone is basically because of archives and because of a rootedness in the past I have because of my life in archives, which um, gives me resources and allows me to have a, a, maybe a personal relationship with the past. I'll try and explain that briefly. Um, when talking about time travellers' guides in general, I go back to a date when I was about 12, and I was taken to Grosmont Castle on the borders of Wales, and it was the third castle I'd been taken to that day. And this was my instigation, not my parents. They were being dragged around after me. And I was really looking forward to see, seeing Grosmont Castle because it was the birthplace of the great Duke of Lancaster, arguably the greatest soldier of the 14th century. And that morning we'd seen Skenfrith, first Lancastrian castle. Later we'd seen White Castle, which my brothers liked because it had a moat. And then we got taken to see Grosmont. And I was so excited, I had this image of uh, the hall at Grosmont and Lady Lancaster being pregnant and the the, the hall painted with the red marks of the stonework and the fire in front of the dais and Lady Lancaster with a bad back and the priest, the whole image. And when I got there and realised it was a ruin, I was hugely deflated, disappointed. And as I walked around that day, listening to the rustling of the trees, I can remember thinking... The way history is put forward here is so utterly dead. All these people have opening and closing dates. The way that in those days the Department of Environment looked after the place, everybody was in their box. And the week before I'd been to the Horniman Museum and seen loads and loads of butterflies all pinned out in rows. And it seemed that this is what the Department of Environment were doing to the past. They were pinning out the people from the past, there's so many butterflies, there's so many different colours. And I can remember thinking, the way to see butterflies is flying around. And that's where my problems with academia really started, because my approach to the past from that day onwards really was we get a better understanding of humanity in the past from seeing it as alive than we do from seeing it pinned out as dead. And that's really the philosophy that underpins time travellers' guides. The idea that you get a better, more brilliant, fuller, more meaningful vision of the past by seeing it as alive. And you enrich that experience more by imagining 
you could go there. And if you think about it, the whole questioning of going there is based on what it's like to be alive now. We are using our own bodies, our own selves, our own experience as historical evidence to ask questions of the past and therefore look for the answers. Now, if you come from a traditional historiographical tradition, that's very, very difficult to do. You can't really play around with the philosophy of history in that way within the traditional historiographical tradition. You can't start asking questions about what the past is like to go there because quite patently you can't. How does all this relate to archives? It's because if you sit within that traditional historiographical tradition, you are largely responding to the questions of historians and the debates of historians. And that is all very good and well. And don't get me wrong, I do not try and criticise academia one little bit. It's absolutely essential. But it's also essential, to my mind, to, to look beyond the boundaries of academia and in that questioning of what it's like, what the butterfly looks like when alive. In that questioning, there is, how do we get close to the past? We can't do it through... Uh, well, Keith Jenkins described, when you're looking at uh, Elton's um, the, the revolution, Tudor Revolution in Government, you're already studying Geoffrey Elton, not the Tudor Revolution in Government. If you want to go beyond the historians, you need to get back to the people who did not know what was going to come next. You need to get back to the archives. And after living with archives from really about the age of 12 onwards and researching family history and national archives, or public record offices, what it was then, and Devon Record Office and having this love of the direct communication with the archives, you, you, you learn how to have this relationship. It might be even only as brief as a relationship you have with somebody in a railway carriage, but you learn from this chronicler or that doctor who is committing somebody to an asylum or, or whatever record it is. You have this brief relationship which allows you an insight into the past directly, unencumbered, by the comments of historians and it allows you to have this personal reaction to the past and therefore to look beyond, in that little instance, to look beyond the academic frontier. So for me, my entire philosophy of history is based on my relationship with archives. As a professional archivist for a number of years, working at the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts for a number of years, using archives heavily, um, it, it, it allows me to look beyond the academic horizon. And that's why I justify standing up to you, standing up here and talking to you about the idea of visiting the past. Um, if anybody was ever going to invent a time machine that would take us back in the past, they'd have visited us by now, so I'm pretty sure one will never be invented. I can't talk about Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan in full. It's a rather big book, um, and I'd never remember it all anyway. So what I tend to do is take the A to Z of things I find interesting about it. Um, so we will start with A and we will start with Z. And A is not for archives in this case. A is going to be for the Armada. Because one of the things that really hit me with a force when I was writing the book was how I totally misunderstand what the Armada is. Um, I suppose because of the way we educate our children, we grow up with an idea, it's a bit like the, the, the Battle of Britain. You know, it's what, a battle that was essential to win. But I had never really thought of it in terms of a medieval battle. And the real importance of the Armada is much more to do with religion. If you think in the 1560s, the 1565 in fact, 
seven years after uh, Queen Elizabeth had come to the throne, the majority of justices of the peace refused to acknowledge her as the, the governor of the Church of England. That level of doubt of the Protestant religion in England amongst the, the people who had a vested interest. If you think that that is counterbalanced by, um, well, if you extrapolate that across the whole country and see what doubt there was about whether we should be a Protestant nation, you can see that the Armada was a huge relief because England, a Protestant nation, had defeated a stoutly devout Catholic nation and it was seen in medieval terms, a judgment from God. And that gave this huge cultural confidence to this country. So A is for Armada. I just want you to bear in mind the religious aspects and the cultural confidence that comes of Protestant victory. B is for breakfast. Um, those who read BBC History magazine will know what I'm about to say next because it appeared in the April edition. But in the 16th century, in Queen Elizabeth's reign, we start eating breakfast en masse. If you're a medieval novelist and you have all your characters, like Ken Follett's characters, sitting down to breakfast every morning, you've got it wrong, I'm afraid. In the medieval period, people eat breakfast before they go on a long journey, if they can afford it. If they're going to do a full day's work in the fields, if they can afford it, of course, or if their landlady can afford it, or Lord of the Manor or Lady of the Manor, they might have breakfast as part of a, an aristocratic um, ceremonial in the 15th century. But the vast majority of people in medieval period do not eat breakfast. Uh, why do we start eating breakfast? It's a fascinating subject. But basically, it comes as a result of people increasingly working in towns or working for other people. So that whereas in the Middle Ages, you organise your own time, you organise your own hours, by the 16th century, when you're having to work for other people, and bear in mind Henry VIII's legislation that said the working day goes through till seven in the evening, well, you can't stick to the old medieval system of dinner at 10.30, supper at four o'clock, because you're not going to get your supper until you get home at past seven. So you have to invent lunch about midday. And that means to start you off for the day, you have to have breakfast. So we go from a society which had a very different ritual, a very different you know, sort of rhythm in the late Middle Ages, to one that you and I would recognise by the end of Elizabeth's reign. Even schoolboys get breakfast. And if an Elizabethan schoolboy is getting it, you can bet your bottom dollar that everybody else is too. C is for cruelty. I'm going to put a few points into this talk which are deliberately to juxtapose against the idea of Gloriana and England's golden age, which we've heard a fair bit about from politicians recently about what we should learn about in our schools. So while I do think the Elizabethan period was a golden age, it wasn't just a golden age of all the positive things. It was a golden age for things like bear baiting and wife beating and things like that as well. The cruelty in society is something that would really put you off the idea ever of visiting Elizabethan times. And that's not just if you're a child or a woman. Start off with animals. Bear baiting is so popular that the Queen recommends all the ambassadors go and see the bear baiting on the, on the south bank of the, the, the Thames, Southwark. She goes, um, she goes to see the bear baiting there, doesn't go to the globe next door, of course, but uh, she does go to see the bear baiting. And, I mean, there, there are so many people who describe with fascination and almost, um, 
oh, what's the word? I mean, it's a real entrancement, the way they describe the frothing of uh, foam about the bear's neck and uh, mouth and the blood matted in its fur as it beats off dogs and the, 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 the t people tending the bear baiting break the dog's floor with sticks and so they can go back into the fight and start again. There is this love of the spectacle of the fight between these animals. But it's not just bears. It's illegal to kill a bull humanely. You have to have it tortured to death with dogs first, by law, or you can be fined. Cockfighting is so popular. People love the spectacle of these animals fighting to the death for money. This cruelty pervades society. It runs into the sense that a man should beat his children. Not may, but if a man does not beat his sons, he is being irresponsible because they may well grow up wild and wanton. And then, of course, you're looking at the cruelty towards women in society. You, you only need to look at some of the moral court records to realise how extreme that was. And I mean, the, the, the old reflection that a man may beat his wife with impunity as long as he doesn't actually kill her shows you how, uh, what a different society we're living in. The physician, Simon Foreman, I remember I, I, the line I put in the book, um, he uh, suspected his wife of, uh, I think it was of adultery, and she railed at him. And he said, I had to hit her two or three times until she would listen to me, as if it was some sort of, it was her problem that he had to hit her. There is this level of cruelty in society, this level of uh, domestic violence that will appall you. Contrast that with Gloriana's England. D, another contrast, is the death penalty. The good news is that in Elizabethan times, should you wish to visit, you can no longer be boiled to death, which was a punishment uh, introduced by Henry VIII for poisoners. That was thought to be cruel, so they did away with it as soon as Henry VIII was dead and introduced burning to death for that crime instead. There are, I think, five ways you can be judicially executed in Elizabeth's reign. Burning to death is obviously one of them. Uh, for poisoning... Uh, petty treason or, uh, or high treason for women and uh, um, heresy, of course. There are still heretics burnt in Elizabeth's reign. They're burnt for... Anabaptists are burnt. Catholics aren't. Burning. Beheading. Obviously, there's the high treason for aristocrats to get their heads lopped off. But also if you live in Halifax. If you live in Halifax, the punishment for any felony at all is to have your head cut off with the Halifax gibbet, which, in case you don't know, is a guillotine. It looks like a guillotine, and it does very much the same job as a guillotine. And it dates back to the 13th century. Dr. Guillotine did not invent it anew. He simply nicked it from Halifax. I think there are 23 people executed on it during Elizabeth's reign. You are allowed to try and move to dodge the, the um, blade, but the chances are it's going to cut your head in half because it's a very heavy block on which this is uh, suspended. All the good people of Halifax are meant to touch the rope uh, symbolically to be seen to uh, exercise justice as the blade comes down. So, yes, cut it, having your head cut off, burning, hanging, obviously, is by far the most common way of getting rid of felons in Elizabeth's reign. And that has its adjunct of uh, um, hanging with drawing and quartering, the drawing is being taken to the gallows. It's not having your entrails pulled out, though that is also part of the punishment. You're drawn to the gallows. You're hanged until you stop jiggering about and your face has gone purple. You are then cut down while still alive and your entrails are cut out of you and burnt in front of you on a fire specially prepared. And only after that, 
are you cut into quarters. And they really are quarters. It's right across the middle. And after your head's cut off, down the middle as well. So when part of you goes up on the bridge, it'll be a limb with half your chest attached to it. And the last punishment, I think, um, worth mentioning of uh, killing people judicially is um, pen fortet dure, which still goes on in Elizabeth's reign. In case you haven't come across this, pen fortet dure, hard punishment and strong, is the medieval punishment for all people who do not plead in court. So if you do not offer a plea, guilty or not guilty, this is what will happen to you. You're placed on the ground with a small rock under your spine and then a board is placed on top of you and then it is loaded with weights, slowly, to the weight of about seven or eight hundred weight. A quick death is three hours. A long death can be more than twelve. And it's agonising um, and... <laughs> the irony is you can only die that way if you choose to because it's your choice whether you plead or not. So why would you choose to die that way rather than um, plead guilty and be hanged quickly? Or even better, beheaded. If you have an estate entailed upon you and you are accused of treason, whichever way you plead, guilty or not guilty, you'll be found guilty if the state wants you to be found guilty and your estate will be confiscated as a traitor. If you do not plead, you cannot be found guilty and therefore your entailed estate will simply go to the next generation as entailed. So there are people who voluntarily to undergo this. There's also a very famous uh, case of um, Margaret Clitheroe of York who, at the age of 29, voluntarily uh, has herself pressed to death in this ma manner so that her children will be not, not be tortured to find out where her papist spies are, uh, papist uh, uh, priests are, um, are, are hiding. Moving on to something much more enlightened, E is for education. There's a lot you, I mean, everybody's come across Elizabethan schools up and down the country. Hundreds are founded. But one thing I want to focus on, because I want to focus on the things that appealed or surprised me or I thought were interesting ways of looking at history differently, is the role of the translation of the Bible into the vernacular. We often hear about how the printing press changed the world. The printing press didn't change the world. Once Gutenberg had invented the, the, the printing press, more often than not, it was used to print high-quality manuscripts or high-quality documents that looked like manuscripts and were high-priced and uh, also were in Latin. It didn't cause an educational revolution. Nothing like the publication of the Bible in the vernacular. Because after the Great Bible came out in 1539, people had the Word of God in their own homes. You didn't need the intervention of a priest and you had a jolly good reason to learn to read it for yourself. So the word of God was at your own hands. What's more, women could start to read it with advantage. In 1500, the level of literacy amongst women in this country was below 1%. Because of the publication of the Bible in the vernacular, women's literacy was over 10% by the end of the century. People learnt to read and write to interpret the word of God. But having done that, they then do all sorts of other things with their literacy. In fact, there are cheap cookbooks aimed at... I mean, Jamie Oliver equivalent for the 16th century was there by the 1590s. For fourpence, you could buy a, a book of all the recipes you would need to impress your visitors. So that, that single publication had 
an immense educational impact on this country and throughout Europe because it's more or less over the same 30-year period that every country acquired its, its Bible in the vernacular. For education, I think that is... Well, I'm just to look at the end of that period, and um, I'm sure most people here have come across Emilia Lanier at some point or other. She's the fourth published poetess in English. In 1604, she published a book... Um, I can't remember the Latin title, uh, Salve Deus Rex Judeorum, in which, in a long poem, she took issue with this whole idea that women had been uh, um, sentenced by God to suffer more illnesses for tempting Adam in the Garden of Eden with an apple. And this had often been used to, to justify women's lower position in society. And she responded, well, hang on, if uh, God created man to be stronger so he should take responsibility... And he was stronger, and yet he did nothing that day, the, Adam, uh, the, the apple appeared, then surely it's his fault. And immediately you have this sort of connection, because this is a book written by a woman for other women to read, this connection with a, a response to the, the prejudices of society. So it's not just direct education, it's allowing people through literature to see differently. F is for fish. The idea that... Um, in 1558, 1559, a big switch was thrown and suddenly everybody became happily Protestant, as we've already seen, is a, a, a bit of a myth. And that goes for such things as diet. You'll remember in the, the, the Middle Ages, you had to eat no meat on Wednesdays, Fridays and Saturdays. Edward VI uh, Council reinforced that for the Fridays and Saturdays. And uh, Queen Elizabeth's um, secretary, Sir William Cecil, reintroduced no meat on Wednesdays in order to um, enhance the, the fishing industry. Which I often think is, you know, we talk about government intervention in our lives now, but imagine if uh, um, the, the secretary, of the, uh, one of the, 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 the ministers was going to say you were not allowed to eat beef on Wednesdays in order to, to suit the, the fishing fleets. I think we'd really be up in arms. But this is what happened in the 1560s. For many people, the observance of fish days wasn't a great difficulty. It wasn't a problem. It was orthodox in the old church. They were quite happy with it carrying on. And you really only see that the significant demise in the consumption of uh, fish on Fridays and Saturdays, uh, Wednesdays fell by the board. You only <coughs> see a significant change after the Armada. After the Protestant uh, um, vindication, as it were, then people are happy with the idea that they can eat meat all the way through the week and God will not punish them. So it's a gradual change from the Catholic to the Protestant way of life. I quite like fish as an example of that. G is for glass. Elizabeth's reign is the first period when lots of people acquire glass. That's widely known. I mean, most of our ancestors prior to Elizabeth's reign would be living in dark houses, single room thick, with narrow windows, small windows, closed with either parchment or shutters or both, and small to keep the, to the, as much heat in as possible. But very little light gets in, even in summer, if you have small windows and parchment over them, and if they're shuttered, obviously very little light gets in at all. But think about the implications of that. It's not just that the poor don't have as much light in their houses, they don't see in the same way at all. And just imagine walking around a house in the 15, well, 1558, 1559. 
you're going to feel your way around more than you see your way around. Because if you're of that status in society, relatively poor, you're not going to have multiple candles in every single room you go into. You're going to make do with a minimum, whether they're rush lights or any other form of lighting. Lighting is expensive. Most people are living on the breadline. Most people don't actually have surplus cash. So therefore, keeping lighting down to a minimum is going to be the norm. And therefore, people are going to worry much more about what something feels like than what colour it is. People's colour palette is that much more limited, not just by the, the fact they haven't got artificial dyes, not just by the fact that a lot of uh, uh, dyes have to come across from the Mediterranean or, or from the New World, Catholic areas. It's also limited by the fact they simply can't see indoors. Now, for the middling sort, glass makes the world a difference. You have glass in your houses, you can read by it. You have so much more natural light, and you need much more colour. H is for heels. Prior to Elizabeth's reign, everybody had no heel at all, just flat sole on their shoe. The idea of a heel comes from cork soles that people had in the 16th century. And over the course of the 16th century, people started to build up the bit that wore most, the cork at the heel, until you have a wedge shape. And if you look at funeral effigies of ladies in particular, that starts to be cut away and a wooden heel put there by the end of Elizabeth's reign. And Queen Elizabeth herself, in 1596, at the age of 63, bought her first pair of high heels, as she calls them. I is for illness. The reason I strongly recommend, with a background in medical history, do not go to Elizabethan England because... The illnesses will get you. It is, uh, we have no comprehension of what it's like living with the plague all the time, for example. Um, in Elizabethan times, it's not like the, the, the plague of the Middle Ages. We're not talking about 40%, as did in the Black Day, 40% of society dropping dead over the course of five months. But you are still looking at a direct relationship between the intensity of a plague outbreak and the size of a town or city. Every 10 years, a medium-sized town can expect to have a plague outbreak, and a medium-sized town can expect 13 to 15% mortality, which is still a lot of people dropping dead all of a sudden. London has several major outbreaks. 1563, in its day, was called the Great Plague of London until the Great Plague of 1603, and we know about 1665 later on. But those early big plagues, they killed off a quarter of the population of the city, I mean, the population of London in 1563 was around the 65,000, 70,000 mark. And 17,000 people died of plague, 4,000 of other causes uh, in the course of 1563 alone. So you're still talking about an absolutely horrific medical landscape. But the thing I want to stress about illness, because I could go through all the diseases and horrify you with more and more things, is how much the, the medical landscape has changed. I'm sure we've all come across books by, um, normally by retired doctors, it has to be said, retired GPs, interpreting practically everybody famous what they died of in the past on, the, on account of their symptoms. It's not like that. For a start, we don't know what diseases they had in the past that we do not suffer from now. Diseases have gone, like the sweating sickness, and we cannot diagnose them now. Similarly, we have diseases that they did not suffer from. So the medical landscape across the period isn't the same. And just to add to the complications, the diseases themselves aren't the same. 
Syphilis in its very early days, about 1500, will kill you in two weeks. Within 20 years, it has adopted its modern format of uh, you know, the whole long period moving into the madness at the end of it. Smallpox in 1562 was a children's disease that no one really took seriously. In fact, there is a man from uh, Elizabeth's court whose famous last words, almost, were smallpox, you can't possibly die from that, uh, before he died. Queen Elizabeth herself got smallpox, and of course, being queen, people did fear for the succession in 1562, hence the Parliament of 1563, but she didn't die from it, and it had no long-term effect on her. Nothing like the smallpox of a century later, when it's as feared as plague. The diseases themselves change. And probably the best example of the lot is flu. Probably everybody in this room at some point or other has had flu. But we all know that the, the flu, the Spanish flu of 1919 killed more people than died in the First World War before it. Or so it's said often over and over again. The flu epidemic of 1557 to 1559 killed more people proportionally than died in the First World War and the Spanish flu epidemic put together. About 7.5% of the population died from flu in that 18-month period. So the landscape of disease changes, and that's why the diseases will get you. I, J is for Jakes. Jakes, in case you don't know, are latrines, loos, garderobes, privies, toilets. And the reason I'm putting in uh, Jakes is because you hear now a lot of things about... Um, uh, past methods of dealing with excrement that simply aren't true. Pouring chamber pots out of upper windows in houses. If you could afford a chamber pot, you did not empty its contents out into the street below because you've obviously got money, you're living in a decent uh, neighbourhood and therefore you're not going to be accused of throwing shit out of your window, basically. You're also breaking the law of nuisance, so you could end up being fined or even being imprisoned for, for doing that. So it's a myth that people regularly poured uh, contents of chamber pots into the street. But it does raise this very interesting question. What do you do with unwanted stuff? And this is a particularly interesting question for a city, and most interesting of all, for London. London, as we've seen, 1560s, population roughly 70,000, 70,000, trebled by the end of the century. You have a massive increase in the population, and yet... Queen Elizabeth says the city cannot expand at all. No building, well, for her, the green belt started at Drury Lane. She forbade building on Drury Lane. So it couldn't expand. The houses went up. You find six, seven-storey houses being quite common in London, in Elizabeth's reign. Imagine you're moving into London as a, a hopeful worker, and let's say you get a good job, and you're earning fourpence a day, which is a good wage in Elizabethan London. That will pay for enough calorific value for you to sustain yourself and your partner, so presuming man and woman. It doesn't pay for food for children. It doesn't pay for rent. It doesn't pay for water. It doesn't pay for firewood, things like that. It doesn't pay for clothing. So you're automatically, if you've just got one salary, one wage, you are automatically suffering from a lack of money. If you have to... If you have an extra, if you have a latrine in your house and you have to pay two pounds every other year for how, to have it actually emptied by night by designated workers who are going to 
break open the cesspit and reline it and then fill it with juniper to stop the smells and compensate the people who they have to carry all the excrement past, etc. It's a huge cost. And if you haven't got enough money to live on a day-to-day basis, you don't really want to have a loo in your home. You'd far rather carry what you produce and get rid of it in a public loo on London Bridge or the Fleet Ditch or somewhere like that. Getting rid of excrement, um, bone that you can't get rid of, uh, uh, fish and, um, uh, entrails, etc. It's actually very, very difficult. And people have to think about it in economic terms too. So the whole idea of loos gives rise to this perception or hierarchy of smell. You'll have that bucket in the corner which will sit there a long time if you're poor. And if a rich person came into the, that room, they'd notice it. Another poor person will understand it's there for a purpose, it's there because of economic necessity. So the perceptions of smell will have a hierarchy attached to them too. K is for kissing. One of the features of virtually every foreign commentator who comes to London comments on is the practice that if you turn up to a London front door, knock, and it is answered by a lady, even if she is the wife of the householder or the daughter of a householder, the correct etiquette is to take her by the arm and give her a good smack on the lips. It's thought to be very strange by all these foreigners um, who, who comment on how much kissing goes on in London. Alessandro Magno is my favourite. He's a Venetian, and he talks not just about the, the kissing on doorsteps, but he's talks about the, the, the kissing by um, boys and girls at dusk who all go out of Moorgate into Moorfields, which in those days was Moorfields. I mean, it was the area where washerwomen laid out their linen to dry after it had been laundered. And he talks about how the, the boys and the girls would play the game of the, the boys trip the girl up, pin them down on the floor, and won't let them up again until they've had a good kiss on the lips. Um, he had, ends up saying uh, uh, they kiss a lot. Uh, he wrote this in 1562, of course, which is just before the Great Plague of London in 1563, so you might want to hesitate if you uh, do feel like kissing a lot. L, uh, what do I say for L? Life expectancy, longevity, something like that. Life expectancy in Elizabethan England is as good as it gets in really until the reign of Queen Victoria. But life expectancy of birth only briefly hits 40. Most of the time it's between 36 and 39. As I say, better than the Stuart period, better than the Georgian, early part of the Georgian period. But if you think through what that entails, uh, most adults lose at least one of their children. I mean, half of all children do not make it to adulthood. So if you have six children, you can expect three of them to die before the age of 21. The median age of the population is about 21. Um, by that same token, uh, uh, half of all, well, most children have lost at least one parent by the time they have grown up. So our, our concepts of family units are hugely distorted if you apply them to the 16th century. There is just an awful lot of death around and people have to cope with it somehow. Um, when talking about religion, I'm very often to draw attention to this mortality in people's lives and talk about the role of religion basically as being the means by which people can deal with so much death. But it is a sobering thought. I think um, I took some statistics for, from Stratford-upon-Avon and uh, you're looking at something like 67 children being baptised every year on average and 40-odd of them 
being, or 40 odd children being buried every year on average. So huge infant mortality, but huge mortality throughout the whole of society. M is for music. People were really confused by the Protestant Revolution. They didn't know what music they could play anymore. It's often said that if you went into a church, you couldn't expect to hear anything other than psalms because psalms were the only thing that everybody was confident you could perform. Now, I'm sure there are people here who know much more about Elizabethan music than I do, and I'm, I'm, I'm doomed to fall flat on my face if I start making pronunciation, uh, 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 sweeping generalisations about this specialist subject. But I think it's true to say that you do see this great rise of confidence after the Armada. Um, Musica Transalpina, which is a book that introduces Italian madrigals in English to the English audiences just a bit before uh, the Armada. So maybe this change in music would have happened anyway. But as soon as the Armada has taken place, there is this confidence in performing music. And there is an outpouring of published music and performed music. Music performed publicly by weights in towns. Um, but it also leads to this competition. There's a, a whole sort of a, uh, a vying for attention between the, the authors of uh, uh, Madrigals and Ayers. Ayers come, coming after John Dowland, of course. So much so that you can almost imagine a battle of the bands between various uh, composers at this time. I also like the, the fact that the music of the period um, explodes quite... It's, it's the, the, the... What's the word I'm looking for? It disproves some of the assumptions we have about religion. I mean, the, the original monopoly on printing music is granted by Queen Elizabeth to two musicians, Thomas Tallis and William Byrd. I'm sure you've all heard of both of them. And you also know that they're both Catholics. It's extraordinary. The, the monopoly on printing music is pr uh, given to Catholics. They only produce one book, and it makes them no money whatsoever. Thomas Tallis... The author of Spelmanalium never is able to perform it in public because it is a Catholic work. He dies off. But William Byrd, in his later days, he starts publishing much more music. And so it's a, it's a Catholic person who actually facilitates this outpouring of Protestant music. N is for... What's N for? Um, navigation comes to mind. I can't remember if that's what I was planning. But, uh, navigation. Um, every time I hear the, 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 the Our Island story vision of English history. I, I'm drawn to the fact that this great supposition that we've always been great sailors because we're an island. Um, we were lousy sailors until the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. If you look at uh, all the tracts on navigation that are published in English before 1558, I think every single one of them is, public, is a translation from either an Italian language or uh, an Iberian language. None of them are indigenous. None of them are original. And then you think about great English explorers prior to Queen... Well, prior to the 1540s, <clears throat> I struggle because our great exploratory uh, um, achievement was, of course, Newfoundland in 1497, which was led by uh, uh, Cabot, an Italian. I think he was Genoese, wasn't he, Cabot? So we hadn't got this um, uh, sense of being explorers. Now, this could be just the way that the, 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 the archives have uh, um, misled us because there is a story that Cabot sailed from Bristol, especially because people from Bristol had gone across to Canada beforehand. But there is no proof of this, and it had no great success. In Elizabeth's reign, this lack of navigational success was totally transformed. 
book after book comes out from England on how to navigate the science, which is part of natural philosophy. I mean, think of natural philosophy as being a science, everything that can be known. Well, that is given huge encouragement in England. And so you have mathematicians working with explorers on how to measure the width of the Atlantic, etc., how to navigate your way around. And there's an explosion of devices for finding your way around the world, too. So that we go from being a backward nation in navigational terms, um, admittedly encouraged by money and Drake's achievement in 1577 to 1580, to being one of the most advanced nations, in fact, the most advanced nation in navigational terms. I mean, the, the achievement of Drake, in case you just remember Drake as the man who circumnavigated the world, when he came home in the Golden Hind in 1580 and became a national hero, it was partly because he was so fabulously wealthy. He would never admit how much money he brought back with him, but the Spanish, from whom he stole the most of it, put it at £600,000, roughly twice the entire government income for the year. He gave most of it to the Queen, and that's why he got his knighthood, because she wasn't keen on giving explorers knighthoods. They weren't gentlemen. Anyway, examples like him and Thomas Cavendish, who sailed back in 1588 with purple sails. Imagine that. Sails dyed purple. You need 30,000 whelks for a single ounce of purple dye. He had sails dyed purple, gold chains around every sailor's neck. He sailed back in. No one took the blindest bit of notice because we just won the Armada. So we've all forgotten about Thomas Cavendish. But people at the time like that really caught the tension of what you can do with navigation, how much money is involved. And so by the end of Elizabeth's reign, you have English navigators being employed on foreign trips. And we've all seen um, uh, James Clavell's Shogun on TV or read the book. And it is totally true that there was an Englishman at the court of Japan by the end of Elizabeth's reign. The real man wasn't uh, um, Richard Chamberlain. Uh, it was uh, Will Adams from Gillingham in Kent. And he had led uh, a, a Dutch ship, five Dutch ships, to Japan and uh, ended up at the court of Tokugawa Ieyasu. Took him 13 years to get a letter home, but um, he was there. O is for oral hygiene. How do you brush your teeth in uh, pre-industrial England? Um, it was rather difficult to answer that one for medieval period. But uh, for Elizabethan, there are lots of sources on what to do about your mouth and your smell. It's very interesting that um, Elizabethan texts hardly ever mention bodily odour. But they frequently mention the odour of the mouth, bad breath. And so they put a very high priority on making your breath smell sweet. Um, uh, and amongst the... Um, I've given a whole load of uh, suggestions here for how you might uh, <coughs> clean your teeth in the 16th century. Basically, rather than a toothbrush, you'll use a tooth cloth, which is a strip of linen which you rub your teeth with. Um, Andrew Board, for example, recommends washing the teeth every day with water and rock alum. For freshening the breath, you could choose spices such as cumin seeds or aniseed. Those were also used in the medieval period, by the way. Or you could use a dentrifice, a tooth powder, such as the following. There's a quote. First in the morning, eat or swallow two or three cloves and keep between the gums and cheeks two cloves. Or else, take an ounce of savoury, half an ounce of galangal, half quarter ounce of the wood of aloes, make powder of this and eat or drink a portion in the morning and a little after dinner and as much to bedward. And I carry on in the text... Some surgeons and apothecaries might offer you tooth blanch to whiten your teeth, made from powdered cuttlefish bone. 
After rubbing your teeth with a powdered cuttlefish bone, wash your mouth out with white wine and spirit of vitriol. And just in case you don't know, spirit of vitriol is sulfuric acid. So the methods you might use to, to clean your teeth in the 16th century <laughs> can be quite extreme. But it leads nicely on to P, which is personal cleanliness. Uh, the whole idea that people don't wash <clears throat> is uh, a modern fallacy. Some people do not wash, but there again, I know people in Devon who do not wash to this day. So um, I don't think you can take much from that. Um, the famous line, which I've heard so many times that... Uh, no one's ever managed to find the original source for me. So if you happen to know which manuscript this appears in, Queen Elizabeth I takes a bath every month whether she needs it or not. I know it's the advice from the Venetian ambassador back to the Venetian Republic, but if you can find that document, I'll I'll give you a kiss. (laughs) I really will. Um, But it colours our thinking of the period. She took a bath whether she needed it or not. What does that actually mean? People do not go and willingly put themselves in large amounts of water in the 16th century for very good reasons. Well, it could kill you for a start. You don't know where that water has come from. You don't know what impurities are in it. You don't know what people have put in it. You remember at Hampton Court, the water supplies are all guarded against poisoning because it's believed that the impurities will get into the body through a bath. So you do not want to immerse yourself in water anyway. Even if you boil that water, that's going to be expensive. The water's expensive. The firewood's expensive. And there's a firewood shortage, remember, in Elizabeth's reign. Now let's go back to your, your person working for fourpence a day, renting a room in the fifth floor of a house in London. Well, even if he gets the water, he's got to get it all up the stairs, into a big bath pan, heat it up somehow, and then he's got to get rid of it all somehow. He'll probably find some use for it bits by bit, but... Frankly, that's an awful lot of effort for something that actually might have a detrimental effect on your health. People believe that impurities in the water are absorbed into the skin and will therefore have a negative effect, upset the balance of humours in the body. But by virtue of that same absorption characteristic of the body, if you are well off and you can afford pure water, rainwater, the highest form of water you can have. There's a hierarchy of four forms of water. Water falls on your roof, your own roof from heaven, best. That's what you use to make rose water. Next best is well water. Next best after, no, second is spring water, and then, then well water, then river water. But if you take that very best water and you put in lots of things that, if they're absorbed into your body, will do you good, then you have the makings of a medicinal bath. The majority of baths that people take are for medicinal purposes. So when the Venetian ambassador says Queen Elizabeth I takes a bath every month, whether she needs it or not, she takes a bath every month, or at least a month, even if she's not ill. That's what he means. She does it to keep clean. And in fact, when she travels, she takes a bathtub with her. Maybe she takes it for medicinal reasons, but she takes the bathtub with her. The majority of people aren't going to wash with water. They'll wash the bits that show with water. The faces, the wrists, hands, neck. The rest of the body, they'll wash with rubbers, which are linen towels. Um, you rub your body all over, or chafe it, as they frequently say, uh, which not only cleans the dirt off, it soaks up sweat. And then, of course, you'll wear a clean shirt, a linen shirt, which will soak up more sweat over the course of the day. And it's this way you keep yourself clean. It's through cl- keeping linen clean. The linen taking the grime of your body away and the sweat of your body away, and you keeping the linen clean afterwards. So if you want to keep clean yourself, you'll have a good washerwoman. Q. Q is for queen. 
what, what can I say? I, I really only want to say one thing about Queen. Um, having come from a background of writing a series of books about medieval kings and identifying what qualities made a good king, which really boils down to being seen to administer justice appropriately and correctly and being victorious in war or being a strong military leader. Well, how do you, how do you become a queen regnant, a female king? Because you can't administer justice and you can't lead an army in war. So how do you develop successful a female kingship, as it were? Well, Elizabeth writes the blueprint and I'm truly astonished by her achievement because no female monarch since does not owe something to Queen Elizabeth. The whole idea of being seen to be the person in control, the display of monarchy, keeping control of the money, playing off her privy councillors against each other. She really did, well, she amazed me in the course of writing this book, and I end up having a great respect for uh, Queen Elizabeth I. R is for religion. If you're Catholic in England, life gets worse at roughly 10-year intervals. <clears throat> Obviously, the Elizabethan settlement of 1559 was a bad day, uh, it, it, it thereby made quite a lot of essential parts of the Catholic service illegal. Um, 1569 saw things get a lot worse. A northern rebellion was followed by um, the Pope acting on a request from the Duke of Norfolk to excommunicate and depose Queen Elizabeth I, which happened in 1571. The unintended consequence of that meant that every Catholic in England was obliged to become a traitor because it meant they should do something about getting rid of her, which in terms of public relations wasn't good for Catholicism in England. By 1580 or 1581, when there were over 100 Jesuits operating in England, administering to the Catholics in the country, there was a, another raft of legislation persecuting Catholics in the country. And by 1593, a, a, another particularly bad year for the, the, the Catholics, by then Catholics weren't allowed to travel more than three miles from their home without um, permission from a justice of the peace, weren't allowed to send their children to school. The whole sort of machinery against Catholicism ha, ha, had uh, really grown to its highest, or well, great strength. But if you contrast that with 30 years earlier, when the majority of JPs still had not signed up to the idea of Queen Elizabeth I as head of the church, it's quite a contrast. Makes me think, certainly. 1560s to 1590s, the, the, the faith of the nation was changed. S is for sex. Um, in Faramar's de Boyle's book from the year before last, The Origins of uh, the Sexual Revolution, he talked an awful lot about how... Um, uh, there had been this sort of movement from um, the mid-17th century when people were still hanged for adultery to, to the, 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 the permissive society of the late 17th and early 18th centuries. And I can remember responding to him, but there was an awful lot of sex before that in Elizabethan times. And the best, for anybody who's ever looked at Emerson's book on um, Essex and the moral courts of Essex, they'll know that 20, was it? 28% of every adult in Essex in Elizabeth's reign was reported for adultery. And the temptation there is to say, well, that's Essex, isn't it? But it's, it's equivalent figures for Yorkshire as well. I'm very fortunate they don't survive for Devon, so we can't be sure. But uh, it looks as if right across the country, the business of accusing people of moral crimes was very, very common. And it would frequently work like this, that somebody in a parish would notice 
into widow so-and-so's house, somebody go, a man go late at night and not emerge until after dusk. And she would be reported for a moral offence with that man. Nothing else more known but, but that, that this man was in her house. So the report would go to the archdeacon. The archdeacon would send his apparatus to the parties in question, saying what they were accused of, this is uh, fornication or adultery or whatever, and requiring them to purge themselves, well, to uh, uh, appear in the archdeaconry court with a specific number of compurgators, or in the case of the women, uh, compurgatrices, between six and nine normally. But this meant that wherever you lived, you had to make that journey with your six people who were going to swear to your innocence. All the, and it can be a long journey to your local archdeaconry court. Where I live in Morton Hampstead in Devon, it would be, um, well, it'd be about 30 miles down to Totnes, to, to, and I'd have to persuade six people to come all that, direct, all that distance and swear to my innocence if I was an accused person. So you can understand how a lot of people find it very difficult to deal with an accusation of adultery or fornication, even if they're totally innocent. What I'm quite amused by is the thought that if I were accused of adultery with somebody else in my parish and none of my friends actually wanted to swear to my innocence, but the, the, my fellow accused managed to turn up with all nine compurgatrices to swear to her innocence, then I would have to be the one who dressed in a white sheet with a wet, white hood on my head and a, held a white wand and confess my sin at the church door for three Sundays in a row and be paraded round the church during the service while my fellow accused sat smugly in the audience. <laughs> I, just, I wonder if that ever happened. I, uh, it must have done on occasion. Anyway, basically, there's a lot of accusations of sex, even if there's not actually a lot of sex going on. T is for... Oh, T is... T is going to be for torture. Um, following on from the religion side of things. Because, I mean, the Pulp Fiction, we all see Marcellus Wallace saying, I'm going to get medieval on your ass. Well, in medieval times, torture wasn't used by the state for political purposes. In fact, most medieval kings were quite proud of the fact they did not employ torture. There's a brief period when Edward II was allowed by the Pope to torture the Templars. But apart from that, medieval kings do not use tortures uh, for state purposes. So Marcellus Wallace in that film really should have said, I'm going to get Elizabethan on your ass. Because after the 1580s, when there are all these Jesuits in the country, over 100 Jesuits, then the, the state apparatus of torture, sanctioned by the Star Chamber, really uh, got into the swing of things. And there are a number of accounts of the tortures that were in the Tower of London for use on Catholics. Everything from thumbscrews to methods of suspending people by their wrists, which doesn't sound that bad. Apparently it's extraordinarily painful after several hours of being suspended by your wrists. You pass out, you're cut down, and the torture is being put back up again. Every time you're woken up, you're put back up again. The little ease, the room that's only four foot square, four foot cubed. The rack, of course, which we all know about. So it's the 16th century that sees the introduction of torture for state purposes. And if you've ever felt inclined to, to go along with the idea of society's progress all being one flow, surely it's the introduction of torture in the 16th century that should disabuse you of that notion. U is for underwear. Just after I'd finished writing that book, uh, uh, Elizabethan Time Traveller's Guide, I was contacted by an archaeologist from uh, Austria, a woman called Beatrice Nutz, and she said, can you tell me everything you know about women's underwear? Um, and I told her what I, what, no, I was basically negative, what I knew for late Middle Ages and uh, 16th century. And she said, um, oh, 
I'm very interested because in a castle near Constance, I can't remember the name of the castle off the top of my head, in 2008, they investigated a vault. And this vault was built in 1479 or thereabouts. And above it, a floor was put in in the very early 16th century. And into the void between the two, there was a load of rubbish, including something that no historian of Europe would ever have imagined to find, was a couple of bras and a number of ladies' knickers, basically, ladies' drawers. And they're clearly um, uh, women's. This is clearly material that's been concealed in there. And it really does beg a lot of questions. Now, I had actually given some thought to ladies' underwear in Elizabethan times because Queen Elizabeth I's funeral effigy, the wooden one in Westminster Abbey, has a pair of fustian drawers on it. And it's always said that women didn't wear drawers at this period. And it's normally assumed that women didn't wear drawers until the 19th century. But then, then I remembered there's that bit in Pepys' diary, isn't there, about wearing drawers. And Beatrice said, well, all the sources I've had that talk about women's drawers, and I mean, laying aside the, the pair that survive in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and the, the story that Catherine Medici wore, uh, uh, wore drawers, all the sources that she had as sort of usuals uh, were Italian prostitutes, basically. When a woman took on a pair, wore a pair of drawers, she was adopting a male garment and behaving in a male way. And so she came up with this idea that they're erotica items. And then if you go back and have a look at that pair in, uh, in New York, they're, they're embroidered in such a way they are definitely meant to be seen. So this made sense to me. And then there's that bit... You look, Remember that context of that bit in Pepys? It's when he fears his wife is having an affair with her dancing master and he hides and he says and the line is to see if she was wearing her drawers as she used to and when I first read that a long time ago I presumed good girls wore the drawers but clearly the opposite way around if she was wearing drawers she wanted them to be seen and it was an alarm bell for peeps if she did put her drawers on and that made sense of why these um, female pairs of drawers in this castle in Austria have been hidden. They're erotica items, um, which is all a very long way of getting around to saying, I don't think Queen Elizabeth I in her lifetime ever wore drawers. You, these for vagabondage. When we talk about Gloriana and England's golden age, we have to remember that there are huge numbers of people, thousands and thousands of people who starved to death. It's often said by historians that the, play, or that the famine of 1593 to 1597 is the last time that thousands of people starved to death in England. Obviously, in other parts of the uh, United Kingdom, that's not quite the case. But uh, in England, it's that 1590s uh, famine. But even so, throughout the reign, there are large numbers of people on the road, often orphans. There are whole gangs of orphaned children who take to crime because they have no way of feeding themselves. And the problem really comes with the, the population expansion. Population of England at the start of the reign is about 3 million, roughly. 3.1 million. By the end of the reign, it's about 4.2 million. And no one has a way of calculating that. <coughs> so no one can actually, in authority, no one in authority can do anything about it. They simply apply the old um, uh, vagabondage laws, which were devised after the Black Death, to keep people in one place. The result by Elizabethan times is that if you're homeless and you're not in your own parish, it's illegal for somebody to, else to give you uh, shelter. There is a pound fine for looking after a homeless couple. Even if they've done nothing wrong, 
it's actually against the law to look after homeless people. So um, we have to bear in mind that it might be a glorious golden age for many, but also for the others, there, there's the sad fate of starving to death. UVW is for witchcraft. And I simply wanted to put this thought in your mind for witchcraft. If you're introduced to a cottage at the end of a village and you're told there's a lady there who has uh, committed some spell upon a fellow parishioner and you doubt that that is true, people will look at you as if you're the mad one. Because witchcraft is enshrined in law. This is what we must remember. Witchcraft is legally recognised. It exists in law. There are three witchcraft acts. The nasty one of Henry VIII is repealed as soon as he dies. So there's no witchcraft act in force until 1563, when Elizabeth's witchcraft act comes in. And that only makes it illegal to kill people, or attempt to kill people with witchcraft. But bear in mind that if your enemy's child dies, and given what I was talking about, child mortality, that isn't unlikely, they might accuse you of witchcraft, of putting a spell upon that child. You'll be tried for witchcraft, for murder through witchcraft, which the penalty is death by hanging. And what are you going to say in your defence? The fact that witchcraft is legally enshrined must surely make uh, these superstitions very, very difficult for people to deal with. W, X, for xenophobia. Um, the idea that... Uh, Basically, as long as you were baptised into the Christian faith, you had a, a, a relatively easy time of things, I'm afraid, is another falsehood. If you look at the, the development of the literature of exploration, alongside the literature of um, the, the stage, for example, or literature generally, you'll realise that there's a growing fear of the black man and the black woman, well, the black man, basically, in society. So that... By the 1590s, you have characters talking about the, black, the Negro, as they describe him, uh, as being a suitable person to draw kings in their chariots. And in fact, James VI of Scotland enacts this and actually has a chariot drawn by black men. The, the harrowing bit for me is, as this gets really nasty, I mean, 1584, Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft, the devil is a black man. He has black man's skin. Um, as this grows worse, you see it, really take a turn against the ports, such as Plymouth, not far from me, and where my forebears lived, in that you'll have the parish registers will record black people and their so-and-so's blackamoor, so they're still owned to a certain extent, even though they've been baptised. So-and-so's uh, blackamoor, and an illegitimate child by Mr. So-and-so. So it's known who the, the, the fathers of these illegitimate children are. So clearly what you have is not so much a form of prostitution, but gentlemen lending out their black women, Christian black women, to their friends for sexual experimentation. There are quite a few of these accounts of uh, illegitimate children from known gentlemen fathers. And so it really was a time that if you were black, you would find very difficult in England. Why is for your ancestry? Because all the horrors, as well as all the good things, have gone to make up the English nation as we know it. I'm, I try and calculate the, the ancestry, the, sort of the saturation of genes over the period. Looking backwards, depending on where you are in the country, you'll have 8,000 to 12,000 Elizabethan ancestors. 
if you're living right at the end of Cornwall, you'll have a very small dream pool to give rise to you. If all your grandparents were in that one parish, then obviously you'll have many fewer. But if you're in the Midlands, chances are you'll have many more. So I, I work on about eight to 12,000 <coughs> of your ancestors were living in Elizabeth's reign. And we come to Zed. Big sigh of relief all around. Because Zed is Zenith. Despite all the cruelty, the death penalties, the, 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 the cruel, the, 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 the sexism, the racism, you name it, the, the, the starving, the death in childbirth, zenith of English literature. This was the age that produced William Shakespeare, whom I managed to go the entire talk without mentioning until now. So I'm going to end there. <laughs> Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 14th of May 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright at the National Archives. All rights reserved.